Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. I'll be keeping you company for the next hour. And coming up on today's show, always be closing. It's the mantra of every successful salesperson ever. But is sales now itself a dirty word? Well, sale impresario Rob King thinks that sales needs to rebrand itself and he's written a book on how to sell better. And this is a particularly interesting book for any of you who might be involved in a creative field. Later on in the show, we'll hear about the World Health Organization having stated that the COVID-19 emergency is over. But how did we do as a nation during COVID-19 and indeed what lessons did we learn? I'm going to be joined by two authors who examined how politicians and policymakers handled the crisis to get their views. You can email me on takingstock at newstalk.com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. So first up today, we're going to kick off with that European Anti-Financial Crime Summit 2023, which is going to be held in the RDS on the 25th of May. And joining me now to discuss it all is Caroline Costello, who's financial crime leader with Deloitte. Caroline, you're very welcome to News Talk. Hi, thank you, Mandy. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Now, tell us a little bit about the summit. Who's going to be speaking at it and what type of people will be interested in attending a summit like this? Uh, So maybe I can just set the scene um, and and call out a couple of things around the purpose of the summit and and why we're gathering uh, this audience together. So financial crime, which is the the topic of the summit, is not victimless. So organized criminals work to make money from child exploitation, forced labor, human trafficking, drug and wildlife smuggling, fraud, corruption, and various other offenses. So this illicit money needs to be laundered back into the financial system. And uh, money laundering is the vehicle through which this is done. So um, criminals aren't bound by borders. They're not bound by regulations in the same way as those who are fighting to keep the public safe are. Um, so it's a shared problem between policymakers, regulators, law enforcement, private sector, and even the citizens. So we're not going to improve outcomes if we don't take a whole system approach. And this is increasingly a point recognized by national governments and uh, oversight bodies. So we need to recognize that the status quo is not doing a very good job at stopping financial crime. And the group of people that are going to be speaking and discussing this um, are part of the solution. So what we're looking at is bringing people from across the globe. You're looking at uh, uh, speakers from the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, the German and French finance ministries, Britain's combating kleptocracy unit, and then also uh, speakers from the CBI and uh, Garda, and then other subject matter experts, both from Ireland, uh, Europe and, and across the world. Mm. And we're going to be looking, uh, amongst other things, at uh, Europe's new anti-money laundering authority, which the government wants to locate in Ireland. So Mm. this would bring in new jobs um, and a 500 million euro budget. Um, We would also be looking at crypto assets, gambling, sanctions. Yeah, so it's quite quite an array of of both speakers and and topics, which we're we're going to try and delve into some of those topics now. But just you mentioned there that 
the pervasiveness, I suppose, of financial crime. It's much more prevalent now in society, uh, given that we're all living online and depending mm-hmm. on apps and stuff. But do you think that as as individuals, do you think there's, a, before we get on to the business end of this, do you think as individuals sure, yeah. we, we now pay enough attention to protecting ourselves or do we kind of adopt this attitude that, look, oh, my bank is going to look after me or the state is going to protect me? Do you think there's enough personal awareness out there about financial crime? Um, I would say probably not at this point. Uh, financial crime is pervasive and it touches on on various parts of our lives. So, I mean, you're you're. I think what you're referring to is is more around like uh, phishing and uh, you know people stealing personal details and hacking through uh, into bank accounts through uh, you know text links and and email links and things like that or you know, uh, romance scams, um, the likes where, where you know, someone is, is approached by a, an individual through social media and asked to transfer money or pay, pay for tickets or, or whatever. Mm. So there's there's education. And, and I know Ireland um, as, as a kind of a, a country is really focused on, on educating people as to the risks of, of clicking through those links, uh, inputting personal uh, data, but the criminals have made it really, really good. Mm. So, um, you know, personally, I've almost fallen victim to to things where you're just absentmindedly clicking through things. You're expecting a parcel. You get a text from Ann Parson and, and you kind of just think this is this is fine. Mm. Um, so there is that that element of, of consumers educating themselves and, and yeah. doing more research and speaking to their financial institutions, uh, making sure they don't click on links. You access your bank account directly if there are any any kind of emails or, or questions around um, transactions that, that you're not comfortable with. Um, yeah, but so as, as you I say, think, there's probably not a person among us who uh, hasn't been you know, caught yeah. in some way. So it's just that level of awareness. Sorry, I'll get back to the conference now. I just wanted to get your ears on that. No, no, you're, you're completely right. So you mentioned there... Um, that you're going to be hearing from a UK speaker about uh, Britain's endeavours to combat kleptocracy with a unit. Can you just talk to me about exactly what that is? So with the the, the war uh, in in Ukraine and, and even prior to that, I do think there was, uh, there has been a lot of dirty money um, flowing through um, or flowing from, from various... Um, uh, oligarchs, you know, coming out of uh, out of Russia, and and there's always been questions around where that money has actually well, come pr- from. Pr- particularly London, it's been called London Grad, and that's where there's a suspicion <laughs> that a lot of it is actually still being housed there. Correct, and and a lot of that would be you know housed in uh, luxury assets. So you're looking at um, money being held in. Um, you know, uh, uh, properties, very lux- luxurious real estate, um, artwork, um, you know, a, a lot of very high end um, uh, luxury items that can be used to not only, uh, you know, uh, uh, launder the money through through the system. So again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, people could buy precious uh, metals or, or um, you know, uh, diamonds or, or other stones. And, and that can be used as a form of, of housing the funds and then selling that and then having a reputable source for, for the money. 
Um, but but real estate has become a big focus area just because of the housing crisis and how certain areas have have shot up in value. Mm. So um, within the UK and, and I would actually say across the globe, um, they have taken steps to try and better identify through the layers of uh, organisations. So uh, a lot of your money launderers would use shell companies and layers of, of companies to kind of hide transactions across the globe. Um, and they're trying to get back to that um, ultimate beneficial owner mm. and figure out who those people are and then figure out where that money is coming from. And do, do, and do, you, get, do you get a sense, Caroline, that the British mm. government's attitude towards this type of activity in the UK has changed? Because, look, Boris Johnson and prior previous governments, even David Cameron, have turned blind eyes to the activity there. But is, is the government under Rishi Sunak changing its attitude in your view? Um, difficult to say. Mm. I would say that none of these things move quickly. Mm. So um, he's quite new in in government. Um, and I would probably say a lot of these functions uh, have been in the works for, for many years. Uh, so that uh, uh, kleptocracy cell that you mentioned was already established last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would say that when it comes to financial crime, uh, it, it becomes a platform issue. Mm. Things don't move quickly until it becomes an issue at the political level where it starts taking votes away from a party. So things, very real things like housing crisis or an opioid epidemic or, um, you know, mm. a visible uh, media article around a, a truck full of immigrants that are found dead on the border. Mm. Uh, these are things that that create change and drive change. And change is unfortunately reliant on uh, regulations. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's reliant on resources. It's reliant on budget. It's reliant on technology. So um, it, it, in my opinion and in my experience, um, even if previous groups have tried to implement um, some of these measures, it may have taken a few years to kind of work through the system. That's very interesting. I will interesting. say, though, yeah. that currently there is a lot more focus on actually making a change in the space in the UK, in Ireland, and across um, Europe. And the um, AML Authority uh, the, the creation of that is a very good example of, of that impetus. Yeah, let's come on to that because you mentioned there that uh, the Irish government are attempting to bid for the location of that EU anti-money laundering authority to be located yeah. here in Ireland. And indeed, on the recent visit of President Biden, um, there was a lot of discussion about the importance of this at EU level. So, can you just uh, talk to our, uh, us a little bit about what the benefits of that um, anti-monitoring laundering authority at EU level would be for locating it here in Ireland? And also, I was just wondering, are there any dangers of locating something like that here with all of the big, huge tech companies having HQs here in Dublin? Mm, uh, interesting question. So uh, I would say, you know, apart from the fact that it would bring, you know, jobs to Ireland mm-hmm. and, and additional revenue and, and investment into the country, which I think is great. Um, I, I do think that, um, you know, as a starting point, it would be focused mostly on on financial services, to my understanding. 
and it would then stretch across other industries that um, are regulated and pose a risk of uh, money laundering for for these criminals that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. So I do think that the fact that we have this very diverse marketplace actually makes Ireland a great choice to house this. Mm -hmm. We have thought leaders and stakeholders and industry leaders, not only from the more traditional um, sectors which are affected. So banking and and insurance and, you know, uh, real estate and and, um, uh, the financial sector more broadly. But we also have very interesting players in in gaming Mm -hmm. um, and in, in the tech industry, fintechs and payment processes. And I think that, again, if you look at where the risks are evolving, it is in the space of um, online activity, uh, social media, uh, processing payments through through kind of social media sites, uh, crypto. So it's I, I think Ireland is actually a very interesting place to house it well, just because we do have that breadth of ab- market. Absolutely. And, you know. 500 new jobs and a 500 million euro budget is nothing to sniff mm-hmm. at so I, I'd yeah. imagine the, the government will do all they can to try and petition further for that. Um, one of the other items that is on the agenda that caught my attention was the metaverse. Uh, you know, this is this virtual world that uh, mm-hmm. Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg had been heavily promoting for the last couple of years. Not quite taken off in maybe the way that mm-hmm. many thought. But there's a there's an item on the agenda about tackling gambling in the virtual world. How does that work? Like, how does even gambling go on in the virtual world? And how do you set about tackling it? Is it is it becoming an increasing issue for people? Uh Another interesting question. I think, again, this is something that the criminals are exploiting because it isn't really understood. Mm. Um, There's so many different facets to kind of living and working in the metaverse um, that are, I would say, at this point, underregulated and under uh, under controlled. Uh, if you if you look at kind of gambling um, and and you look at uh, even a, a trademark infringement and you're looking at, uh, you know, exploitation of, of various forms of, of individuals. We've had some pretty interesting conversations, even within uh, our kind of ranks as, I would say, kind of subject matter experts in this space. And it's it's so untapped mm. that I think we haven't even covered what we think the risks are going to be. And it's, it's such an interesting evolution, looking at um, metaphysical aspects of real life risks and how do you monitor that and how do you control that and how do you cross jurisdictionally um, take care of a problem that you know where data is housed in one country a user might be housed in another country a victim might be housed in a third country and activity might be you know crossing across various borders Mm. so you know there's there's such interesting changes and evolutions to this space. Um, and I think it's great that we're starting to ask a lot of those questions. And, and again, back to my point around having this, this really diverse group of uh, organizations in Ireland who are able to come together at a forum like this and then sit around a table at a, you know an organization like the AML Authority um, or even roundtables, or you know, um, sitting together through through public and private uh, information sharing, or even private to private information sharing, 
and uh, trying to define what those typologies should look like. And when I say typologies, it's like risk factors and um, looking at uh, uh, behavior that, that doesn't make sense and, and then reporting that in terms of regulations. But um, I think there's the right people in the room having these conversations so that we can start trying to solve what that problem is going to look like mm. and uh, prevent prevent criminals from, from using some of those loopholes that are currently in place. Yes, Caroline, when you explain uh, the gambling and the metaverse together, you begin to get a, a, a proper visual on how complex the solutions to these problems are for regulators, borders, policing and Mm -hmm. now of course that access to our own information and our finance is more and more online. Yeah, I mean, you know, a a conference like this is going to be something for thought leaders in this area and just kind of displays how complex a matrix it is we're dealing with. So just to close this out, um, because we run out of time, I'm afraid, tell us uh, how people can find out more about the conference. Um, So there are various areas where you can actually uh, sign up for the conference. So if you just uh, either Google or looked in LinkedIn, um, the European uh, Anti-Financial Crime Summit uh, 2023. Um, Otherwise, if you just Google it uh, or or look at LinkedIn, you should be able to sign up there. So uh, looking forward to to seeing you all there. That's fantastic. That's the European Anti-Financial Crime Summit on in the RDS on the 23rd of May. That was Caroline Costello, Financial Crime Leader with Deloitte. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. After the break, can creative types become good enough salespeople to sell themselves? Find out after the break. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word sales? Is it always positive or you've got those images in your head of the ubiquitous salesperson with the gift of the gab? Well, my next guest thinks that SMEs, particularly those in the creative sector, have to rethink the importance of sales. Rob King is the founder and CEO of The Client Key. It's a sales and marketing company that specializes in helping creative businesses and agencies grow their sales and revenue. His new book, is called Selling Creativity and it's just been published and Rob joins me now. Rob, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thank you very much. Hi, Mandy. Appreciate you having me on the show. Not at all. Now, there's that famous sales adage, you can't sell anything until you can sell yourself. So why should we listen to you when it comes to talking about sales? Well, it's uh, it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, I, I was just listening to you kind of framing the way we view sales and we very much do that in the book and um the the point i make in the book is actually sales needs a a bit of a rebrand in the creative industry and not just in the creative industry in fact probably in in most kind of business and walks of life for too long i think we've we've seen sales as a as a negative thing uh, when in fact it should be embraced and is actually very positive and the reasons why we've kind of seen like that there's obviously good reason we've got a fairly stereotypical view of most salespeople uh, when in actual fact you know the, the really good ones in most companies are the ones that are really allowing businesses and organizations to thrive and be very busy and and to grow rapidly so I guess the kind of the big idea in the book is really that we need to just start to sort of reframe and rethink the way we view the concept of sales and what it is um, to kind of to sell effectively 
Yeah. And tell us a bit about your own experience. How did you glean all this? Um, how did you come to this view where you've obviously worked in the industry yourself in sales and particularly in the creative side? So talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, um, I've spent more than 25 years working in the creative industry and a, a variety of roles, really. I, I had a, a few years at Abbey Road Studios um, here in London, which was uh, a bit of a, a bit of a dream for me. I'm a big music fan. So when mm-hmm. I, I got that job, um, I absolutely loved it. And, you know, going across the famous Abbey Road crossing every day to work was was just incredible. Um, I've worked for many kind of film production companies all around the world and some of the biggest sort of high profile advertising campaigns and then lots of smaller agencies. And so I guess I've always kind of had that that thread of, of business development and, and sales in my career. And the one thing that's always stood out is 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 often that that instant reaction you get when people um, kind of think about sales. I mean, a lot of people sort of shy away from it, um, or they just they just perhaps don't embrace it. And I, th- I think you know the the UK probably has one of the best creative industries in the world. I mean, that's again an, another point I'm making. The book is one of the one of the few sectors that we can genuinely claim is is world beating and is up there. Um, as one of the best creative industries in the world, if not the best. And so we, we've got these sort of credible kind of talents across film, art, music um, here in the UK. And I'm encouraging people to, to sort of really go out there and make the most of the businesses they have and um, to really kind of be able to sort of um, – sell themselves effectively, mm. which not everyone in the creative industry can do. And I've seen that firsthand from experience. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, I have to pick you up on something because we'd challenge you here in Ireland uh, at being the best creative country in the world. Our Eurovision performances <laughs> excluded <laughs> maybe in recent years. But you make a really interesting point in the book about creative people in particular. Um and and maybe they don't see sales as being something that because they're creative, actually, they can do. And you often and it just struck me when I was reading it, you often hear creative people, whether it's in advertising or, you know, creative in an art sense. They say, you know, I, I never I never do the promotion like I don't promote myself. I, you know, that's not me. I don't do it in the same way when you're at school. Maybe a teacher told you you're good at maths, but you can't do English. So do you mm-hmm. think that there's that? And that's why I love the title of the book, Selling Creativity, because, you know, in the world that we live in, uh, a lot of people have to promote themselves. And particularly in the creative side, there's a lot of competition. So tell us about the bits of the book that would appeal to somebody who may be creative and may not see that side of their business as an important thing. Yes. Well, it's it's a great question. And I mean, I'll start by just quoting um the late great steve jobs from from apple and he famously said real artists ship and what he meant by that phrase real artist ship was you know a, a true artist not only can can produce or, or create uh, something amazing whatever that may be but they also have an ability to get it out there to ship it to sell it and to get it in someone's hand and that's what he meant by you know his definition of, of real artistship and I love that quote and mm. I think it's so applicable to, to us in our industry because you know if if you are in business as a creative and of course you know 
creativity can also be a hobby which is you know so many people enjoy that as well but if you we're talking about the kind of commercial aspect of creativity here and in the book and if that's your business then you do need to know who your customers are where they are and how you can sell your work Mm. and there's probably three main groups that the that the book really is 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 there to support and that's kind of the creative agencies of the world events companies film production companies the armies of of what we call freelancers so art directors people that work perhaps um even artists or, or writers script writers um and again you know talking about sort of billion dollar uh, billion pound um industries um here so there's, there's lots of people in that sector and then the third category is perhaps people wanting to break in to the industry and there's a lot of information about um our creative sector in the book so i've kind of tried to frame it as a, as a really good reference point for anyone that might be wanting to start working in the industry or, or find out more information about it I mean, just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock, and I'm talking to Rob King. He's the founder and CEO of The Client Key, and we're talking about his new book, Selling Creativity. Yeah, just just that that Steve Jobs quote was a great one. Bono is a great example of someone who who cannot just produce great music, but they're constantly reinventing themselves. When the Apple iPod came out, they you know, they were the first to put their uh, yeah. their music onto it and shift the iPads or the iPods as well as the music. So, yeah, it's not enough just to create anymore. You've got to be able to uh, use your creativity to, to sell that that product. So um, one of the things you mentioned there that the book is aimed at freelancers. And of course, we're living in a society now where the world of work and how professions have totally changed from when many of us started where you just try to go into a job at Abbey Road and stay there for the rest of your life and maybe that's always been the case more so in the creative industry but there's certainly a lot more people now who are their own businesses they're not just trying to sell themselves to an employer and in that sense this part of the book I feel the freelancer one does give someone not just the tools but also how important the sales part is to the creativity now. Um, and can, can you just give us some of the, the real examples of how a freelancer could look at sales in, in, a, in a way that they maybe haven't before? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think one of the, one of the first things to say about that is, is, in essence, you know, we, despite the book being called Selling Creativity, we almost kind of, for 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 uh, for a moment almost want to sort of suspend that idea of wanting to sell people something because at its heart kind of sales is a very human activity i think we say in the book a, a few times you know we're not really deliberately trying to go out and sell someone something we're more trying to understand them as as people first and foremost and and I suppose that kind of is, is really one of the, the key points is that there's a lot of information here. And, and if we think about, you know, the concept of, of selling in general, it, it's more about trying to um, have, the, have that kind of softer skill where you can sit down with somebody and you can talk to them and engage them and ask them questions and just get to know them a little bit better. And by doing that, of course, you will then probably quite quickly understand, you know, what their what their needs are, what their motivations are, what their kind of pain points are. And all of that is incredibly useful in any context, not just a business one, of course. 
whether it's kind of social or, you know, you're just looking to sort of progress certain elements of your career. So in terms of kind of freelancers and, and what they can, can learn from the book, I, I think there's a huge amount of kind of behavioral thinking in there around, you know, if, if you're out there in the market and you are trying to sort of um, give yourself that advantage and, and to perhaps, you know, get more work and secure more contracts, it kind of starts with getting to know people a little bit better, building your network. Where can you where can you kind of influence your own kind of personal brand to a degree? Mm. And of course, you know, you might say, well, actually, that's moved quite far away from the, the straight concept of sales, which which I think is is true, because back to my, my first point, you know, in essence, it's a very human activity. You know, we mm. are simply trying to kind of get to know people, build rapport with them. And then, you know, you might find that they are ready to buy from you as opposed to overtly trying to sell them something. Absolutely. There's a very interesting section on meeting rules even and how to pick up on different signals and body yes. language and stuff, which uh, might might be news to some people who are not used to those type of environments. Just finally and very briefly, Rob, because we've sadly run out of time, why do you think that we've arrived at a point where sales has such a bad rep? Well, um, it goes back many years, of course. Um, there's a little historical um, recap in the book um, going back to uh, to kind of 18th century America and some of the, you know, we talk about this uh, where, where the original kind of snake oil salesman, which is a term that many people might have heard, comes from. Um, the the late 80s, uh, 90s, you know, these, these sort of very aggressive sales tactics. Um, I think it's really just sort of taken hold in, in sort of our, our, our consciousness that this isn't necessarily a particularly good thing. And, and I think it, it puts a lot of people on the back foot. And I guess my definition of sales is is very far removed from from that and and actually it you know when done right it, it it's a very it has its place at the very um heart of of all great businesses you know in the same way that kind of marketing and, and finance and all these functions that we think of in business and we don't kind of have that negative connotation about them um but again i think it's back to that human point isn't it it's it's how people feel and it's how people are made to feel when when um, the, the kind of sales practice is not done in a very healthy or, or, or appropriate way. Um, and the good news, of course, is it only takes a very subtle, simple shift for people um, to make, for, for creatives and people in their, in their business to make. You know, you don't have to, we're not talking about radical behavior change here, we're just talking about being a little bit more professional in a few key areas and it will make yeah. a massive difference. Absolutely. And very often doesn't even require any investment. Well, Rob, we wish you every success with the book. It is a fascinating insight into your world. Uh, that was Rob King, founder and CEO of The Client King and author of Selling Creativity. Rob, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. You're listening to Taking Stock on News Talk with me, Mandy Johnston. And after the break, I'll chat to Jack Horgan-Jones of the Irish Times and Hugh O'Connell of the Irish Independent about the end of the COVID emergency. You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnson. Now, recently, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 is no longer a global health emergency. So we wanted to take this opportunity to look back at how we as a nation handled it and what, if any, lessons we learned. I'm joined now by the Irish Times political reporter Jack Horgan-Jones and Hugh O'Connell, who's deputy political correspondent with the Irish and Sunday Independent. You're both very welcome. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Now, 
you both wrote a book together. It was called Pandemonium, Power, Politics and Ireland's Pandemic, which documented essentially how the government handled the crisis. So before we get into all that, I just wanted to ask you, like you were both journalists, political journalists, very busy, presumably mm. with that mm-hmm. and also very busy getting on with your own lives. Mm-hmm. What point did you both sit down and go, you know what we should do? We should write a book about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think we, J- Jack and I have been working together since we were in the Business Post and uh, and obviously then we went our, our separate ways. But uh, we'd always talked about the idea of writing a book, but it was always trying to settle on a topic. Um and, you know, a few ideas thrown around over the years, I won't get into them now. But, you know, when the pandemic came along, I think we both realised pretty early on that we were never going to cover a story of this magnitude potentially ever in our careers. Mm. And so it presented really a perfect opportunity, given that our day-to-day lives were dominated by reporting on the pandemic, uh, to see if we could do a, a bigger picture look at how the state responded uh, and how we did. And so the opportunity very fortunately arose for, for both of us. Uh, we, we, we were approached and um, we, we decided to, to take it from there. Uh, so we worked with Gill Books um, in the summer of 2021. Uh, we had some conversations and from there we, we set about over the following nine months putting together what we hope is the definitive account of, of how Ireland uh, handled yeah. the, the pandemic. It was a big commitment, Jack, wasn't it? Because you were already very busy and had a very serious job to do at that time reporting on the facts themselves and you had access to lots of very important people. Mm. So you decided to look at the pandemic through the prism of politics and power and officialdom. Um, and in those early days, March 2020, we didn't even have like a functioning government. So... No, we didn't. I mean, that's what people tend to forget at this remove, that we had we had a general election in February of 2020 and then we had COVID in March. And in the interim, there was effectively a hung doll and inconclusive result. So uh, we had a caretaker government. So really, and one of the kind of underlying themes of the book, uh, as you'll see from the subtitle, is power. Power had kind of been sucked from the sitting government. And all of a sudden, they were confronted with this really uh, systemic uh, existential challenge and they did perceive it as an existential challenge and Pascal Donoghue who was there in the cockpit for not only the Covid crisis but also for Brexit and since then the, the cost of living crisis he describes it in those terms early in the book as existential not just in terms of the kind of the threat to life and limb mm. and the kind of the, the virological threat from Covid but also the threat that it presented to the state and how the state did business because it was clear that the shutters were going to have to come down they were going to have to interrupt change of transmission and that just meant people couldn't see each other and that obviously didn't mean just that people couldn't socialise together but also that people couldn't go to work and that life as we know it would have to effectively come to a shuddering stop Um, and that is you know probably the most seismic event I certainly hope that I will ever live through you know I mean we all I think have have these kind of terrifying memories of that time of the uncertainty that that uh, overrules all of our lives and the drastic measures that were that were taken at that time and just to return to the the idea of power because power in the government was not kind of really democratically properly orchestrated at that time and because of the nature of the challenge I think there was a uh, an acceptance and a willingness and a welcomeness within government to devolving a lot of the power and a lot of the decision making uh, capacity to a, a group of technocrats who became known as NEFIT the National Public Health Emergency Team led by a very uh, strong personality uh, in, in, in Tony Holan who became you know the overriding figure I was 
I, I would say, along with maybe two or three others, who um, who 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 directed the Irish response to the pandemic and kind of and lodged himself firmly in the public consciousness in a way that I think no other civil servant certainly has in the history of the state. That's right. That that democratic mm. deficit, yeah. power deficit, then was taken over, as Jack said, by uh, official power, if you like. You were there times when the balance then started to yeah. go maybe oh, in the totally, wrong direction. Yeah. And the thing was out of control in the sense that politicians couldn't get their arms around things. Yeah, I think so. I mean, just to, to briefly go back to the establishment of Neffet, I mean, I think, you know, when we look look back at the pandemic, and it's easy to say this now with the benefit of hindsight, but I don't think that Neffet would be established in the way in which it was. It was yeah. established without a cabinet decision. It was established without any uh, parliamentary oversight, really. Um, it was set up by the Minister for Health, as previous Ministers for Health had set up national public health emergency teams for things like SARS and MERS and altogether less serious diseases. Um, but in this in this instance, it became the preeminent sort of decision-making body. Uh, now, the old uh, maxim, I suppose, or it's not that old now, but the maxim was, you know, Neffet advises, government decides. But in the early days of the pandemic, whatever Neffet said went. And I think, in, in fact, Simon Harris is, is quoted in our book as saying that, you know, he was at one with Tony Holhin on a lot of the decisions around protecting public health because we were operating in a sphere where we had no idea how serious this disease was, uh, you know, because there was no data really. It was early emerging data from from China and other countries that had been hit before Ireland. But we were dealing in, a, in an information vacuum whereby we just did what we thought was the safest option, which was lockdowns. Mm. Um, and so at the beginning, in the first wave, in, in sort of the spring of 2020, I think everyone generally, including the politicians, uh, were happy to, to go along with this. And the public went along with it as well because fear ruled everything and we you know we may remember listeners may remember those scenes from Bergamo in northern Italy where the the army trucks were carrying the coffins of the dead we didn't want that in Ireland and a lot of people spoke about the impact that that had on them in terms of that early decision making but as we get into the summer of 2020 and the disease uh, is effectively extinguished uh, from the community at least temporarily um we uh, get into a, a situation where politicians are asking, well, did we have the right approach to shut down the economy for two months, three months even? Uh, could we have done it differently? Look at what was happening in Sweden, for example, where they, they didn't have as severe restrictions. And then into that space as well comes a new government in the summer of 2020. So we do get that sort of, I suppose, that, that democratic mandate of a, of a coalition government formed of, of three parties, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens. And we get a new minister, a new minister for health. We get a new Taoiseach. Uh, and we also, into that space, we get things, unfortunate things that happen, such as the Secretary General of the Department of Health, Jim Breslin, moving uh, from that department to the Department of Higher Education. And most importantly, I think, and, and we reflect on this in the book, uh, the Chief Medical Officer, Tony Holohan, going on uh, compassionate leave, his wife uh, very sick and, and subsequently passed uh, later on in, in, in the pandemic, but taking that leave at a time when there was a new minister in the department, a minister in Stephen Donnelly who had no prior government experience, all of that into the mix uh, created a more fraught political situation as we moved into the second half of, of 2020. And of course, what also happens hand in hand with that kind of almost total overhaul at the political and the official level is that the disease starts slowly marching back. So you have this new set of relationships at the very top of the decision-making structures, which were kind of fuzzy and, and poorly defined. I mean, Hugh said that the maxim was Neffet advises and government decides, but always Neffet had a huge amount of agenda-setting power. Um, so you have this situation where like, the decision-making is not quite clear exactly who 
holds the whip hand at any one time and the disease starts coming back and it happens it plays out against the background where the government is trying to figure out how to get on with itself you know Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil obviously have never been in party in power together and uh, notwithstanding the confidence and supply arrangement this was a proper full, full-fledged coalition and that relationships those relationships didn't merge very well at the mm. start there were mm. there were cabinet memos being rewritten at the cabinet table there was there were significant doubts over you know uh, Stephen Donnelly and how he was prepared for the job um, and this was kind of the the, the background mood music shift mm. as the disease starts coming back and and look I read this book this Christmas just for a bit of light entertainment <laughs> for a break for you but it is incredible how much we forget yeah. about how dysfunctional a lot of all of this was and everyone mm. was just trying to get through it and stuff. And, you know, you made the point there earlier um, about the balance of power between Neffet and the politicians, but the public, and you read in the book, the public were listening to Neffet. They weren't looking to politicians, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. I just wonder, though, um, and I wanted to get your, your view on this, Jack, first of all, when you were going through all your interviews, and I, a part of the book that impressed me greatly was the amount of people you did get to speak very frankly to you about it. Were there any of those interviews that you kind of were a bit shocked at how forthcoming people were in terms of their their contribution and assessment or was there anybody who stuck out for you as God they impressed me as into in, in respect of their attitude to how they just got on with things there was definitely some people who I was surprised at the views they were willing to go on record with and I think that that's part of the um, part of the advantage of doing a book on something like this as opposed who, who to, would you say I think Paul Reid I was very I was very surprised that Paul Reid was willing to go on record with the uh, the strength of criticism that he had for uh, Stephen Donnelly now subsequently he left his position so perhaps he knew uh, at that stage maybe that he, he wasn't going to but when maybe he, he, he certainly did yeah. but I mean certainly when the book came out I I mean, this was a a sitting uh, chief executive of the HSE criticising the the management style, effectively, of uh, the Minister for Health. He had said that um, when the Minister for Health came in, that being Stephen Donnelly, some of his team found his manner to be a little bit disrespectful. And that kind of played into a, a wider critique of Stephen Donnelly's style uh, and his, his management and the way that he inter- interacted with people and the way he could command, uh, I suppose, ultimately the respect of other people yeah. around him. And and that was kind of, I suppose, fundamentally the, the point um, with the Paul Reid intervention. It, it, it conveyed perhaps a little bit of a lack of respect for the sitting Minister for Health from the sitting uh, CEO of the HSE. And it wasn't just Paul Reid, you know. I mean, I was very impressed as well by... Um, by the whole host of people that we spoke to throughout the book but like you know Tony Holden didn't hold back as well um, Yeah no no the contributions are very frank and forth They are frank and I think It was in the middle of it It was well, in the middle you know? of it and that, that I mean, the, the disease was, was evolving exactly. as we were writing the book so we started in 2021 again the virus was somewhat in abeyance you know so it was summertime and then all of a sudden the delta mm-hmm. wave happened so we were reporting on this for our, our jobs in real time but also writing the book and talking to the people who were shaping the response both for the book and for our day jobs as as it was happening in real time. So it was a really fascinating reporting yeah. project yeah. but it also enabled us to, to really get a, a vital insight I think into the mentality at the time. It must have been difficult at times to get those interviews and not want to use them straight away because they would have been very newsworthy at the yeah. time. Oh yeah, unquestionably <laughs> so but I mean I think... Sometimes we, sometimes we just turn the, the, the recorder off for the interview and, and lob a few questions in jobs, for the paper. Yeah, with some of the pr- participants. There, yeah. yeah, so yeah, I mean like Jack's right. I, I do think we benefited though from, from the I mean, we started in, in the summer of 2021 and obviously then we had the, the winter of 2021 and remember, like, Christmas 2021 wasn't pleasant. Pubs were closing at five o'clock, you know. Restrictions were very much in place. Um, 
But as we got into the into the early part of 2022 and spring 2022, when the book was coming out and we were finalising the book, and we were talking to people that we spoke to on, on the principle of deep background, whereby we wouldn't identify uh, the source of the information that they gave us, and we were talking about whether they might want to put their views on the record, I think people kind of came around to the idea of, you know, I wouldn't actually mind saying that because, you know, the pandemic is kind of, the emergency phase at least is over. So I'm kind of at a point now where I feel comfortable enough to, to put this on the record. So I think that was that was to our advantage. But, you know, there were, and I can't name names in this instance, but there were some interviews that we did where we sat down with people who, who we won't ever be able to identify, but who gave us just a fascinating, yeah. compelling insight. Yeah. But background. In background on, yeah. a, on a deep background basis. People who uh, changed the way we thought about yeah. the pandemic. Oh, okay. There were several of those I interviews, mean, I, I think, where we both walked I, away. I just think you remember sitting with one individual over scones for about three and a half hours. <laughs> yeah. And it, it, that was the interview that we came away from. It made us, this was a, a senior person, uh, I can't go any further than that, involved in the pandemic response, but they they changed the way we think. Wow, we, th- we thought about, yeah. about the pandemic and, and the way in which the state handled it and approached it at an so official level. Side. So unfortunately, we're running out of time now. Two, two questions left for yeah. you. One for you, Hugh. How do you think as a state, how prepared were we for any emergency? So you were reporting it from beginning to end. Could you yeah. look at it now that, you know, the WHO has said it's, mm. we're out of that emergency phase? Looking back, do you think as a state we were ready for that type of emergency? No, um, but I don't think any country was because this was a once in a century event. Um, and I think that the state did what it could with what it, what it had, with the resources that it had at the time. And do you think Europe were prepared as a, as a, as a body to help us as a member no, state? No, I, I don't think so either. And indeed, Simon Harris speaks to this in the book, the lack of coordination at a European level from the outset. Mm. Um, that, you know, there, was a, there was a feeling that there wasn't enough coordination at a European level at the beginning, which hampered the response. Now, things did get better as the pandemic progressed, most notably with the, the bulk buying at the EU level of vaccines, which were then distributed uh, across member states. So that did help in terms of vaccinating the, the population. Uh, and we had enormous uh, compliance with, with vaccination, uh, which I think was, was to the state's benefit. But that's the people. That's, mm. that's not necessarily the officials and those behind the scenes. I mean, they, they were able to put in place the structures and it was patchy at the beginning, but it got better as the pandemic progressed in terms of being able to vaccinate people. But the, the public's buy-in, I think, was crucial to Ireland by most objective studies uh, coming out of the pandemic reasonably well in terms of the number of uh, you know, serious disease or it's number of serious cases, but death is, is ultimately the, the measure of how well we did. And, and we, we measure pretty well on that front, but we didn't get everything right. I mean, two things that come to mind. We delayed introducing masks, although now there's, there's potentially evidence that do mask ma- were mask mandates effective. The evidence, I think, has been, or so far from the studies, has been that it's been inconclusive. Uh, and, and rapid testing, rapid antigen testing, covered that a lot in the book. Huge rows about that between mm. the government and, and NEFIT um, and, and the Minister for Health in particular. We were slow, probably, to the mark on that one. Uh, what impact that had we can't really determine that and can't quantify that really. And Jack, final final word to you on this is he was said that we did do some things well mm. and uh, countries are negotiating a pandemic treaty. Uh, do you think Ireland can bring anything to the table specifically that we learned? Do you think we'd be more prepared in the future? And sorry, I know this is a triple barreled question, but <laughs> do you think it's realistic that the government will have a proper evaluation uh, that's public of, of how we handle things? <sighs> I think the two answers are linked, really, to be honest. Um, I think in order for us to make anything approaching a reasonable or useful contribution, we'd have to figure out ourselves how we think we did. We'd have to mark our own scorecard. And the government has displayed, I would say, a fairly studied indifference to doing that so far. Um, There is a report 
sitting on Stephen Donnelly's desk for, I think, six months at least now uh, by Hugh Brady. Um, the former president of UCD who was commissioned to look into into the pandemic response, the public health aspects of it. It's a first draft, it's a first attempt, it's a first strike at doing the post-pandemic assessment. It remains unpublished. Uh, there have been various other uh, reports done, but that's a big one that hasn't, and we haven't really uh, progressed that far down the road to uh, to holding an inquiry. We seem to be kind of, you know, unable to decide exactly what format it takes, you know, whether we can trust the, the Oireachtas to do it, uh, whether, you know, we want to have people in public you know everyone says that we want to learn from this but there's a tension at the heart of of how we go about doing that because we don't seem to be able to trust ourselves to do it in a mature way so I think we need to get over that and if we are going to extract useful as they say in the in the jargon learnings from this process they have to get on with it and they have to identify what they are and not not just you know stare at their at their toes wondering what the best way forward is well look we could spend another hour I guess the three of us chatting about this and um, look as I say I read the book at Christmas I think many people mightn't have read a book like this at the time because they simply didn't want to read it while it was so fresh in their minds but it's called Pandemonium Power Politics and Ireland's Pandemic and I was delighted to be joined today by its writers Jack Corgan Jones and Hugh O'Connell thank you for joining me Thank you Well that's it for this episode of Taking Stock and while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings we're always available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app that's powered by GoLoud. If you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items or any suggestions for future shows, you can do so on takingstock at newstalk.com. My thanks, as always, to today's guests and to the producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy, with Hugo De Silva Scott on sound. Jonathan McRae is coming up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.